What a wonderful time of worship we've had so far, listening to the praises of God's people, praying, singing, uh, making melody in our hearts together, uh, actually joining in with the great throng in heaven uh, at the same time. What a great concept that is. I want to share another concept with you uh, pretty soon as we get into our text this morning. We're going to look at just one verse today. We're focusing our attention on verse 28, Hebrews 11, verse 28. Uh, and uh, we, uh, we need to kind of set the tone before we jump into that, because it is packed. I want to say that there is a name that theologians have for the act whereby God extends grace to both the church and to the unbelieving world. It is called common grace. Both share it. Jesus explained it to his disciples this way in Matthew 5. God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There is also a good amount of God's blessing in life that unbelievers experience just by their association with the church. We saw that back in Hebrews chapter 6 and again in chapter 10. Go back into the Old Testament, Potiphar and his whole household enjoyed God's blessing because Joseph lived among them. And likewise, the Babylonians received God's blessing because Daniel was among them. Paul would actually say that a believing spouse sanctifies his or her unbelieving spouse, which means putting that unbelieving spouse in a position to be exposed to more of the gospel of God. God is gracious to the unsaving world through his providential care of creation, by restraining sin in the world through human government, by writing the law in the hearts of the unregenerate, by giving them a conscience to know what is right and what is wrong, and everything that human beings experience that attests to just how wonderful God has created them is manifest uh, is a manifestation of His grace. Their intellect, medical, scientific, technological advancement, even a good lawn. Apostle Paul would write or would speak, rather, in, in his evangelistic address to the Greek crowd in Lystra and explain that God did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. So even their very joy, the joy of an unbeliever, is attributed to God's grace. God does this because it's his nature to be gracious, but also to give humanity a chance to acknowledge him and hear the gospel. Paul makes his very point in his message to the, in the Areopagus to the great Stoic philosophers. He says, so having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Now, let me turn the tables on your thinking. I've been waiting all week to do this. I want to turn your tables, uh, turn the tables on your thinking and say that while God sends rain and sunlight on both the believer and the unbeliever, he also sends judgment down on unbelievers that impact believers who are among them. I'll say that another way. We Christians cannot escape the divine judgment that God pours out on the land of the ungodly that we also occupy. 
or on those unbelievers that we're in some way connected with. We're in the world. We live in a particular country. And when God brings temporal judgment on it, we're caught up in the middle of it. And we have no choice but to endure it well. Now let me open that up for you just a bit before we talk about God's temp- by talking about God's temporal judgments. God judges sinners, that's obvious. He also judges the unbelieving world in specific contexts. When, for example, those pagan nations that God used to reprimand unrighteous Israel and take them into captivity, when they overstepped their bounds, became arrogant and prideful and mistreated Israel, God judged them. Listen to Isaiah 10. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the arrogant pride of his eyes. Same was true of Babylon, according to Jeremiah 25. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation, declares the Lord, for their wrongdoing. I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. Other nations of the ancient world that God judged because they had overstepped their authority and became arrogant are Syria, the Philistines, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. Just a short list. Job made this observation. God makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations and then leads them away. And God's judgment on the unbelievers is not just an Old Testament phenomenon, beloved. We see it in the New Testament as well. God killed Herod for his display of arrogance. He robbed God of his glory and God ended his life. God also destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. Jesus even prophesied that that would happen There can be no doubt that at times God brings judgment down upon a particular unbelieving nation or people's group or even certain individuals when they become too arrogant and prideful. There are also times when God brings temporal judgment upon apostate and compromising churches and professing believers as well. Let's not forget that that part of the equation. We're told in no uncertain terms that he brought about the death of Ananias and Sapphira for lying to him. According to Luke's account in Acts 5, every genuine believer in that congregation understood exactly what happened and they feared the Lord properly that day. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul, with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, passes judgment on a believer who refuses to repent in a context of church discipline and he says, I've decided to turn such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his body, that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's harsh words. Meant for a believer in the church. The risen Christ himself warned six churches in Revelation to repent, or else he would bring temporal judgment upon them. And he did. They're no longer there. In a few of these wayward churches, by the way, the Lord does tell us that there were some among them who remained obedient to him, which means that they had to endure whatever judgment God brought upon their compromising church and disobedient leaders. These examples from the New Testament clearly show that God does bring temporal judgment on the church as well as on the world. 
Now, there's every reason to believe then, especially in light of the passages in Revelation, that God still works the same way today. don't know if you've thought about this or, or wondered about it, but he does. Certainly, there's indication that this is true in God's sovereign decrees. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it is true that we can never know what God has decreed in the future, unless, of course, Scripture specifically tells us. But we can know what God had decreed once it's over. You just look back on yesterday and the day before and all of history. We simply look back in time. Everything that's taken place in human history is what God decreed before the foundations of the world, including his judgments. We might raise a practical question at this point then that maybe some of you have already raised in your mind, and that's this. Can I know for sure when God is bringing temporal judgment down on on our country or on a local church or on a body of Christ at large or maybe a prominent Christian or non-Christian? Well, that's a fair question. Not so easy to answer. My personal opinion, for what it's worth, and it's not worth much, is not very easily, not very easily. In fact, we should be very guarded in making any bold statements that God is judging either the church or the country because those statements are often subjective. It's, and, it's, and it's not any easier to interpret past events as being clear judgments of God either. Now, for example, a church goes through a split Both sides claim that God was judging the other. Which is it? Did God judge the group that left, exposing them as troublemakers that that are now homeless, that is to say without a church? Or did God judge those who remained, exposing them as corrupt leaders that are now limping along? Or take the claim that some Christians have made that God judged President Trump's administration by preventing him from having a second term, arguing that he was arrogant. While other Christians claim that God was really judging our nation by preventing Trump from a second term, arguing that America has become arrogant, prideful, immoral, and godless. In fact, God gave them Biden instead As if to say, you want your godless way, then I will ram it down your throat. So which is it? Hmm? If your life depended on it, would you be able to choose? Or again, while God, once again, while God does bring temporal judgment on both unbelieving nations and individuals and on apostate and compromising churches today, of that I have no doubt, faithful saints cannot always call it objectively difficult. And when this assessment is more subjective than objective, it should caution us about being too dogmatic. All right, maybe some of you didn't like that. So you'll be happy to know (laughs) that having said that, we can be 100% sure that God has built-in judgments to all sinful activity. All right, we can. 100% 100% certain of that. No, no subjective subjectivity in that at all. That, that's an objective thing. We, we call those built-in judgment consequences to sinful behavior. And since God himself designed them, they naturally fall into the category of divine judgment. 
This was the case with Adam and Eve. God said, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. God told them in advance that the consequent judgment of disobeying him would be death to them and their progeny. God laid out the consequent judgments uh, that he would bring down on Israel in advance should they disobey his law. Now, I bring that up to say that while we're unable to actually say with any degree of certainty on any particular situation that God is judging America at this point or a certain national leader in this way or that, as well as compromising churches and church leaders, there can be no doubt, listen very carefully, there can be no doubt that every sinful act has a temporal consequential judgment. Some are immediately obvious and some take a while to manifest. They might be minor, insignificant, and last only a while, or they may be major, significant, and hang around forever. These consequences can be spiritual, mental, or physical. Whatever their nature, whatever their manifestation, and whatever their duration, they are there. They are consequences. There are consequences to a promiscuous lifestyle, to substance abuse, to gender reassignment, to same-sex marriage. We're seeing it. If you live in a promiscuous, live a promiscuous lifestyle, you will reap the consequences of that lifestyle. God says so. The sage says Proverbs thirteen fifteen. Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the transgressor is their own destruction. You see, God designed and built in, or or designed built-in consequent judgments to all of our sinful behavior. Take the act of lying, for example. If you tell a lie, you will have to tell another one to cover the one, and four to cover the two, and eight to cover the four, and 16 to cover the eight, and so on. And unless you have an exceptional memory and can account for all of these lies that multiply exponentially, you will eventually be exposed. And that is a temporal, consequent judgment. Now I bring this up to say that when faithful saints are innocent bystanders in situations that go from bad to worse in an immoral society because of the increasing immorality there and the immoral decisions of its leaders, the terrible consequences of that immoral society will have a direct impact on those faithful saints, on us. Bad decisions made by our national leaders impact all of us, Christians included. And we can say the same thing about the church in America. Apostate and compromising churches will reap temporal consequences on their sinful behavior, and faithful saints among them will be impacted. I've, I've, I've mentioned my conviction many times over when we began the book of Judges four years ago, and since beginning our study in the book of Hebrews a year and a half ago, that the church in America is in a season of apostasy and compromise. I have no doubt of that. And because that's true, those who compromise will reap the temporal consequent judgments of God. Those judgments will impact faithful believers among them. 
What I want us to understand is that those of us who are believers and have not been swept up in the sinful current of this particular immoral season in our nation or the compromising way of churches in America are nevertheless in the midst of it. We cannot escape it. We have to endure it well. That's what we have to do. We have to endure it well. The true church has always found itself in the direct line of fire of God's judgment of the particular immoral culture in which it is situated or of a compromised or apostate season of the body of Christ at large of which it is a part. And those sound in the faith, they can and they must persevere through it. God calls us to resist the temptation to compromise right along with them. Resist the pressure that an immoral nation or a compromised Christianity exerts on us. Resist the strong pull from an immoral culture that is ready to punish all who stand against it or form, or, or from a, a compromising tr- a Christian movement within the body of Christ that, that grows and becomes influential and explo- exposes faithful Christians who stand against it as being unloving. I think we're experiencing all of this today. I think you know exactly what I mean. And I think many of you have been on the receiving end of a lot of this. And it's only going to worsen over time. But more than this, we must accept God's judgment that is directed to those around us and that impacts us. We don't just endure it, but we must accept it. Whether you want to believe that it is God's direct temporal judgment or God's built-in judgment that is the consequence of a godless lifestyle, either way, either way, faithful saints are in and among it. We need to accept it humbly as from the wise hand of a good sovereign and endure it patiently by faith. That's what we have to do. Those of you who were with us in our study in Judges saw a remnant in unrighteous Israel that had to endure God's judgment on the nation. They had to endure it. And they accepted it. Because they knew that something better yet awaited. And years later, when the nation eventually was taken in captivity by Assyria and Babylon, the remnant was taken right along with unrighteous Israel. The latter was being judged. The former had to accept it because they knew and believed that it was still part of one of the ingredients of a a divine plan to get the nation from point A to point B. They, of course, didn't know when point B would ever come. didn't make a difference. When God judged Egypt, Israel fell the repercussions until it was over. You know that once Moses started challenging Pharaoh, situations got pretty bad for Israel. They were ill-treated and they, and they didn't receive it well. Now we know that, what, that when this happens, God's obedient servants, of course, are not being judged. They are nevertheless impacted. God wants faithful Christians in these contexts to remain faithful. That is his message to us. Whether we are ensconced in an immoral society that God is judging or is reaping the consequences of its own immorality 
Or we're in a season where the church at large is compromising, reinventing biblical ministry, reinventing the gospel, and it is reaping the consequences of its disobedience, and we're feeling it. We are in the thick of either situation. And sometimes, well, for us, I think, we're in both at the same time. And as I believe, uh, uh, have always believed, I believe it still today, we need to stay the course. We need to stay the course. Now, what does that mean? What that means specifically is this. This is what I want to prove to you today. To stay the course in these contexts where we are in and among the judgments of God, either because of an immoral society or a posty and compromised church or both, it means to uh, persevere in gospel truth. So what do I mean by that? I mean that we are, resolved to, we are resolved to live our lives in accordance with our confession of faith. We are resolved to live in accordance with what we know is truth, the truth of the gospel, what is true of us now because of the gospel, because we are redeemed, and not in accordance with compromised truth of wayward Christianity or in line with the public conscious consciousness of our immoral society. It means that we produce a lifestyle that is centered on the gospel. We live Christ to the immoral society and to wayward compromising Christians. We become the expression of sound doctrine in such instances. And so let me show you this from the text. This all comes out of Hebrews eleven twenty-eight. Hebrews eleven twenty-eight. Here we encounter the fourth and final major truth about Moses living by faith. We have said already that faith perseveres through fear, verse 23, obediently through suffering, verses 24 to 26, and through death threats, verse 27. Here the writer makes the argument that faith perseveres through God's judgment, verse 28. It says, by faith Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch them. All right. The writer tells us that the Passover was the driving force behind Moses persevering through God's judgment on Egypt. And I might add, any Hebrew who was not under the blood of the Lamb, not just Egypt. Let me take this verse a phrase at a time. There are three sections we'll look at. We'll start with the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. What a strange ritual this is. The specifics of the Passover are laid out for us in Exodus 12. I need to read that passage for you because it it will give you context. So if you bear with me, this is God's word, Exodus 12, uh, verses 4 to 13. On the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to the father's household, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male of a year old. You may take it from the sheep or or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to slaughter it at twilight. Moreover, they are to take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh at the same night, roast with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. 
and you shall leave, not leave any of it uh, over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall completely burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this way, with your garment, garment belted around your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and fatally strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the human firstborn to the animals. And against all of God's, of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will come upon you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Very interesting institution. It's in Exodus 12. So God was about to kill every firstborn Egyptian whose house was not covered by the blood. But why this specific judgment, you might wonder? Well, God's judgments have been described as talionic. Talionic justice. What does that mean? It simply means justice that befits, or punishments that befit the crime. Like eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood. Egypt was abusing God's firstborn, so he takes theirs. That's why. But there is a more profound meaning to Passover. It's really about three things. First of all, it's about justice. God judges sinners. The wages of sin is death. God is obligated by his holiness to punish sinners. Number two, it is also about God's mercy. According to to Exodus 12, each family was to sacrifice its own lamb in its place and put the lamb's blood on the doorpost and lintel. When God saw anyone under the blood of the lamb, he would pass over them. So while God demands death for the wages of sin, he accepts the blood of a perfect substitute. This is the concept of substitutionary atonement. Number three, it is also about God's grace. God not only saves sinners from what they deserve, his wrath, but he delivers them to a redeemed life that they don't deserve. For these Israelites, in Moses' day, that would be the promised land. So when God keeps us from condemnation that we so richly deserve, that's mercy. And when he gives us salvation that we don't deserve, that's grace. Mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin. Knowing what we know about Moses' upbringing and being catechized in the faith, that he trusted the future work of Messiah and was hoping in the establishment of a messianic kingdom, there is no doubt that Moses understood the greater significance of the Passover. He could see that it was God's tangible expression to Israel of his covenant promise, ultimately, of Messiah, the Lamb of God, who would take away their sin. The Passover, beloved, is about the gospel. And that helps us understand why God called the Israelites to perform this strange ritual in this situation at this time. It was a great way to instill them with with his covenant promise of future blessing that he gave to their forefathers and that he was now faithful to begin fulfilling They needed to remember that their entire existence is founded on gospel truth. 
how God will create a people for himself by his own might through the seed of the woman, through the son of promise, namely Messiah himself and his redemptive work on their behalf. That Messiah, God's firstborn, only begotten, would bear the brunt of his wrath meant for his people that they might be saved. And we see that in, we see that in the purpose clause in the rest of verse 28. Here's the second section. So that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch them. You see, Passover was, was, was about more than just freeing Israel from the bondage of Egypt. It did double duty. It was about that, yes. It judged Israel's oppressor, sure. But more importantly, it taught them that without the blood of a perfect substitute, Israelites themselves would have been judged right along with their oppressors and would have died, firstborn would have died. They were no better than the Egyptians. Please understand that. They needed to be delivered from the bondage of their own sin, and the Lamb of God, Messiah himself, would do just that for them, deliver them into eternal life, which is really what the promised land represented, pointed to that better country. More to the point of Hebrews 11, though, it is that this verse proves that God's people had to persevere through God's judgment on a pagan nation in which Israel was associated. They were in the direct line of fire. What would drive them to persevere through God's judgments? Nothing more than the firm conviction of the gospel that they understood and saw illustrated so tangibly and visibly in the ritual of Passover that they rehearsed together. They left Egypt on the firm conviction that God was delivering them from the bondage from bondage to freedom. And that was fulfilled immediately again in the deliverance from Egypt and to the promised land weeks later. But we have to believe that many of them anticipated the greater fulfillment of Passover, which was being saved from God's wrath and the bondage of their own sin and ushered into God's eternal kingdom by the future work of God's anointed one, Messiah. I say that because saved Israelites were well catechized and had an expectation of this fuller meaning. That, I would say, is what motivated most of them to conduct themselves in a gospel-centered way in the midst of God's harsh judgment that fell all around them. God's delivering Israel from Egypt was a symbol, a type of his delivering his elect from their bondage from sin and his own wrath to come. In light of what we've said about Moses' knowledge of God's promise of future blessing, his faith in Messiah, the fact that he would choose the reproach of Christ, we must believe then that Moses looked forward at this point to the full salvation of God's people to which Passover pointed. Well, the last part of the verse then, the third section, that is equally important as the beginning is this. By faith, Moses kept the Passover. He kept it. Now, this speaks to us. The tense of the Greek verb translated kept suggests that Moses actually instituted Passover as a perpetual feast for the future 
Israelites, all generations to come. And that actually squares with the rest of, of Exodus 12. If Moses had the fuller meaning of Passover in mind, then by keeping it with the nation, he in essence, in the midst of all of this judgment falling all around, he rehearsed the gospel with Israel in this very tangible and graphic way and centered their actions around it as he prepared to lead them out. Now, let me try and make this all practical for us. Take it out of the old and put it into our human story. The thrust of what we've been arguing this morning is this. If we are to remain faithful to God and persevere even through his divine judgment, meant, of course, for the world and for compromising churches all around, we must ground our actions in gospel truth. We must, mustn't lose sight of the full redemption that's waiting for us, our inheritance of glory, and we then need to live in light of it. Through all of it, we need to live in light of our full redemption. When we live in anticipation of full redemption, the future work of Messiah on our behalf, we live gospel-centered lives, lives that are in accord with our confession. We don't compromise the message because of pressure from the culture or from a, a large cross-section of compromised churches out there. No, we hold firmly to it. And in, and in this redemptive process of our initial, that our initial conversion started, we further conform ourselves to Christ and we strive to be what we have already become in Christ. Living gospel truth means to live Christ to the world. It means obeying his word and putting on display the redemptive life that Christ offers without giving a second thought to the consequences of our obedience. We leave them with God. And in doing this, we resist compromising the truth in, in, in order to alleviate any persecution that comes our way from family or friends, or religious groups, or wayward Christianity, and the government. Now, this is exactly what the writer was calling those who were starting to drift to do. And some of them were not living as those who had been delivered from bondage by the power of the gospel. We need to make sure that we evaluate our lives in the midst of, this, of, of all that's taking place with, 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 uh, with God's consequent judgments, both in the world and in wayward Christianity, and ask ourselves, are we living through it in a way that represents deliverance from bondage, that represents the power of the gospel, that represents uh, that, that we are in, in concert with, with our confession? I want you to think of this as we begin to kind of pull this to a close, the Lord thought it important enough for the Old Testament remnant to live gospel-centered lives in anticipation of their full redemption that Messiah would secure. He thought it important enough that he instituted and commanded them to practice the Passover. It's no surprise then to find that the Lord once again, this time in the New Testament, and for the same reasons instituted the Lord's Supper, which is his fulfillment of Passover, and commanded his disciples to keep it together until he returns and brings 
full redemption. Why? Just as Passover was to Old Testament saints, so the Lord's Supper is to us a tangible illustration of Messiah's redemptive work now and the promise of full redemption later. That's what it signifies. Jesus drank three cups with his disciples then, but reserved the fourth cup for his union with us in heaven someday. It's going to happen. And when we're driven by gospel truth and the full redemption that awaits because of it, we fight to live what is true of us now. We live as we ought, as those covered with the blood of the Lamb, as new creations, as those who belong to another kingdom that is coming. Persecution and compromise surrounds us, and, and when it starts to reap divine consequent judgments, we labor all the more to think and act in keeping with a gospel-centered life. The gospel illustrated so graphically in the Lord's Supper is what drives us to live above the fray of a sinful world and wayward Christianity. Reformed Christians speak of this ordinance as means of grace. Why is that? Well, means of grace are God's ordained channels, if you will, of strength, strength and encouragement that, that he gives to us spiritually, spiritual strength, spiritual encouragement, such as preaching of the word, communal worship, baptism with its testimony and, and allegiance made to Christ. Practicing the Lord's Supper together, as we do, as Jesus and later Paul commanded, encourages us to stay the course in light of gospel truth. Jesus died for it, and as we drink, we're saying we're prepared to die for it as well. Because there's a fourth cup. Because there is future blessing awaiting us. It speaks of God's judgment for sin as provision for salvation, as future blessing of the church in heaven, and, and therefore a way to live out the truths of the gospel. It is a living document, documentary of our doctrine, which is why it is so important to live gospel truth when divine judgment is working out all around us in both the world and in the church. It allows us to endure God's judgments meant for those that we're connected with and accept the repercussions of it in our own lives with joy. We know it's going to test our faith. It'll develop more perseverance in us, better character. And this, of course, squares with what the writer has to say about receiving God's judgments later in chapter 12. How important is it that we rehearse and live in accordance with the realities of the gospel and the covenant promises of future blessing that it contains in our current situation in America, in a season of apostasy and compromise of the church? Well, it's very important. I don't have to tell you the pressures that the world exerts on Christians with its critical race theory, eagerness to label people racist who don't agree with them, the absurd white supremacy philosophy being pushed, sensitivity classes and classes on how white people need to reject their whiteness in corporate America. It's all such a toxic environment in which people stand to lose their livelihoods if they don't play by these new rules. We Christians need to resist them 
and remember the gospel and live by gospel truths in this environment. Perhaps the saddest and most disconcerting of all this is the compromise in the church. The church is losing its distinctiveness and it's buying into the country's woke mentality and inclusivity policies. In a July interview with National News, famed Christian artist Amy Grant spoke about her support of the LGBT community. Quote, gay, straight, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how we behave, Grant continued. It doesn't matter how we're wired. We're all our best selves when we believe to our core, I'm loved. Her message is that if you know God loves you, it doesn't matter who you are, what you are, or how you behave. What a destructive doctrine that is. Max Lucado, another well-known Christian author whom many of you know, recently made a public apology to the LGBT community for his past comments on certain issues that upset them. In it, he confuses being kind with a salvific inclusivity and winds up misleading those to whom he apologizes. Quote, the LGBT Q individuals and LGBTQ families must be respected and treated with love. They are beloved children of God because they are made in the image and likeness of God, end quote. There's no question that Christians must treat all people, regardless of race, gender preference, political stance, or religion, with the love of Christ. People should ever ask you what, what Pilgrim Reformed Bible Church does with Homosexuals, what do they think of them? We think that God wants them under the preaching of the word. God wants them to receive him. That's what we think. We are to love, uh, we are to love or give Christian love to all people regardless, as I say, of, of differences. We are to love even our enemies, right? But to suggest that because human beings no matter who we're talking about, are created in the image of God, and that makes that 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 places them among the beloved of God is to preach universalism. Such comments are not examples of living by faith. They're not examples of clinging to gospel truth to persevere through toxic influence. Nope. We all know, too, don't we, that our liberal states and current administration have been using the pandemic as a means to further their political agenda, which has no place for worship. Their ban on church worship last year became suspect as soon as they supported Antifa and BLM riots with no mask and no social distancing. The need for abortion clinics and liquor stores to stay open while churches should be closed. Pastor John MacArthur of Grace Community Church saw through this with a, a God-given discernment, stood firmly against it, and held worship services. We all know he was sued by the state of California, but he countersued and just recently won his case. He was awarded $400,000 which he promptly gave to his legal team who represented Grace Community Church pro bono. On September 1st, just a few days ago, he was interviewed by Grant Stinchfield. 
the one quote that really summed up MacArthur's perseverance through this whole time came in answer to Stinchfield's question, quote, what advice would you give to pastors all over the country, end quote. He replied, quote, this is what it means to act in faith. Listen to the Lord and trust him for the consequences, end quote. Maybe he's been listening in on our series on Hebrews. I don't know. Maybe we just read from the same book. God may very well be exacting judgment on our nation and on wayward churches that are influenced by it. Whether we can recognize that or not is really not the issue. It's enough to know that sinful behavior has built in divine consequent judgments and we surely are seeing the fallout of an immoral society such as ours and of a compromised Christianity. The important thing, beloved, for us is that we persevere through the fallout and not be swept up in it, not be influenced by it, by its pressures, that we ground our thoughts and our actions in the very gospel and all that it signifies, that we receive well whatever situation we're in as from the hand of a good sovereign and as a context in which we may grow and demonstrate our faithfulness.